Hello, and welcome to The Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. Today, we're going to be continuing our discussion of the rise of the counted world, by which I mean the rise of statistics and numbers about the society and the state. But today we're going to be moving away from Britain itself and onto its colonies. Now, just to situate you a little bit, in the 18th and 19th centuries, Britain became a huge colonizer. I think it colonized about one third of the entire earth. And one of the biggest places, if not the biggest, most important thing that it colonized was India. So we're going to talk a lot about uh, the rise of the counted world in India. Then we're going to shift gears, and since this is the last episode we're going to be doing on the counted world for the time being, I'm going to talk a little bit about historiography. Historiography is the uh, historian jargon for historians talking about other historians and what they think about history. It's kind of boring, but it's a little bit necessary, so I won't be personally hurt if you skip that part. So, let's get on to the main point here, and that is the rise of the counted world in India. And I'm going to explain to you in this how Mount Everest got its name. So the big story in the rise of the counted world in India is quite similar to the big story of the rise of the counted world in Britain, and that's that we have the formation of a bunch of institutions that create numerical and statistical knowledge about the country here, India in part so that they can do things better. But this creation of a body of numerical and statistical data also has this knock-on effect. People understand the world numerically now. There's now statistics, numbers about the rates of death and birth, the populations of particular people. And from this, people can make arguments about what society should be doing. They can see society in a different way. Society is no longer just the people that you talk about. Uh, and talk with on the street, but it's this kind of abstract notion of a, of, of, of a particular people who are counted and put under a particular column heading in a particular census, okay? But of course, this is quite different from the process in Britain, even though the, uh, there's a lot of similarities, because Britain was not colonized and India was. So we're going to talk about two big moments of the rise of the counted world in India. The first is the Great Trigonometrical Survey. Now, this was a project to measure the, the arc of meridian up and down India from the very, very bottom of South India up to the very top of Nepal. And for those of you who know geography, this means that you cross the Himalayas. And just to, to, to get a sense of the absolute insane scale of this project, the Great Trigonometrical Survey started in 1802. The East India Company, who commissioned it, thought that it would only last five years, and it lasted until 1871. In doing it, they measured 2,400 kilometers of land. Now, why would they do this? It took, at some point, 700 people to set up the incredibly precise observations that they needed to figure out this trigonometrical survey. So why did they do it? Well. There's a big practical reason for why they did that. If you're a colonizer, you need to know the territory that you're occupying. If you have an army marching through a place, you want to know how big a distance it is between one city and another, and whether there's any, you know, marshes or rivers or, you know, Himalayas in between you and your, your desired goal. 
And once you have an idea of a scientifically demarcated and stable space through this terribly advanced uh, uh, mapping project, you can compare one place to another fairly easy. Before the, the Great Trigonometrical Survey, mapping in India was, was relatively imprecise. And at the time, it was the most advanced mapping attempt anywhere. So they, they used a, a huge system of change and a special uh, theodolite, which is one of those funky little surveying telescopes, to measure the distances and angles between three different points accurately. In doing this, they built up this kind of honeycomb of, of observations stretching up and down uh, 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 the spine of India. And one of the big things that they did is that they figured out the height of Mount Everest. Um, Mount Everest actually is named after George Everest, who I think at the time was the superintendent of the Great Trigonometrical Survey. And they found through doing tons and tons and tons of, of measurements of the precise angle from one place to another, they found that Mount Everest was 29,000 feet above sea level, which is first crazily tall. But what's even more uh, interesting is that they were only about 30 feet off. Using a system of chains and telescopes, they were only 30 feet off the height of Everest that we can discover using um, the most advanced uh, uh, satellite imagery. And the very precision of these, these, these uh, readings was one of the, the, the big reasons for the Great Trigonometrical Survey. Um, one of the things that they wanted to do was to be able to measure the actual curvature of the Earth. But there's another reason why they did it, because, you know, this was a colonizer. They didn't exactly, the, the people at the East India Company counting the coins that were coming in from India didn't exactly care about the precise curvature of the Earth in a project that would take 65 years to complete. No, they did it for control. If they could map the terrain better than others, then they could control it better. If they could map the terrain furthermore using the most advanced scientific and accurate knowledge and methods, then it promised that they would use the most advanced scientific and accurate methods of governing the populace. Maybe we can see this a little bit clearer in the question of the census. The first Indian census was held in 1871 and it asked seemingly innocuous questions about name, caste, religion, kind of dwelling, race and nationality, literacy and infirmities of every single person in uh, British-controlled India. And this was not the first time that British civil servants had tried to enumerate the populations under their control. But in all of these attempts, there was a problem. And we can imagine that problem if we put picture in our minds the, the big gigantic sheets of paper that these early statisticians would be recording the results on. Um, we would see columns and rows and the person would put little tick marks and write little things in there. Well, one of those columns would be labeled cast and would have a big empty box where the surveyor would record the cast of the person that they were surveying. The problem with cast is that in India, cast was not a commensurable term. A Brahmin in one place was not the same as the Bra a Brahmin in another. And there, furthermore, were hundreds, if not thousands, of castes that people claimed. Uh, this was a problem for civil servants who were trying to enumerate things. They would complain that one uh, surveyor would say that there were 300 castes in an area, and another surveyor would say that in another area there were only six. But 
To measure in the census, caste was boiled down to only a couple of options. And this imposed a kind of uniformity and translatability that caste did not have before. People who fit into the category of Brahmin were Brahmins everywhere. And there was a way in which all Brahmins were now alike. This didn't just make caste countable, it made it fixed. It allowed the people who uh, uh, were classified as a particular caste to have a sense of solidarity with everybody else who was also of that caste, even if they'd never met each other before, even if before the census they had not been registered uh, as the same kind of person. Now, there were similar problems with religion and occupation that happened with the census that we don't need to get into. Um, with religion, it actually turned out that there was no real good way to define what a Hindu was. Buddhists and Christians would say that they were Buddhist and Christians, but the British administrators in India could not figure out a way of defining what a Hindu was. The big point of this, though, was the demands of the colonial state for information smoothed out local difference in a way that gave people new categories of who they were. So now we're going to get a little bit into the historiography of the counted world. Um, and this might be a little bit technical or a little bit boring, so that's why I put it in a separate section. Now, I just want to draw out a couple of the similarities that I saw in the five books that I read to make up this section. So everybody agrees that there was a huge increase in the amount of printed numbers describing the world starting sometime around 1800. And everybody also agrees that this had important effects. Some of these effects were from the top down. This changed the way of how the state saw the people that it administered. But it also had important bottom-up effects as well. It changed the way that the people saw themselves and changed the way that the people demanded things from their government. Finally, to get this knowledge, you needed some kind of specialized institution that would do the difficult work of gathering the information, collating it, doing all the, the counting, making all those tables, and publishing it. A general records office, a statistical society, or something. Now, that's what everybody agrees on. But there are two big cleavages in these readings. The first is that the scholars that I'm looking at disagree about precisely what's new about this counted world. So in one camp, there are people who emphasize the increased role of the state, that the state was the one who was classifying and counting people, and they did this for the purposes of social control, so that the elites or whoever was running things could look at the people and control them. The biggest representative of this suspicious view from these readings is uh, Yu Kalpagam, whose book Rule by Numbers argues that the enumeration of Indian land and people was essential to British colonization. In another camp are those who emphasize that this had already been happening, that the enumeration of all these people, of the counting and, and gathering of information and statistics had already been around, and in some cases was really quite aggressive, that what had changed was the place where these statistics were being produced and in the publicity of the information. In this camp is Edward Higgs, who identifies three different periods in the way that the British state uh, interacted with information. 
first in the early modern period, which goes from like 1500 to 1800, um, local agents collect information in the interest of the state, um, but they don't distribute it anywhere. In the liberal period, which goes from about 1800 to 1870, the central state produces information um, that supposedly will help the oversight of local authorities. And in the new liberal period that happens after 1870, um, the central state is pushed to use the information that it gathers to actively try to change society. Another person who thinks around these lines is Ian Hacking, whose book Taming of Chances really famous in this sort of stuff. And I think that Ian Hacking sees the important change as the massive publicity of numbers. Before 1800, people were still counting things, and they were often counting things like population or trade. The important change was that after 1800, there was a flood of publication of statistical data. Now, this flood of, 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 of printed numbers about society and people lets people to start to reason about things using statistical inference. It suggests that there's this thing out there called society that you can fix with a number. The second major cleavage in these readings basically asks, was the counted world a good thing? One camp says that yes, it was a good thing. It generated a ton of knowledge about individuals, about the state, about society, that let civil society improve itself. The most trenchest person in this optimistic camp is Edward Higgs. Um, and he argues, for instance, that the general records office helped people manage their own property, that data about mortality helped people live longer by managing disease, and so on. But there's another strand of this optimism, which sees the rise of the counted world as helping people argue with the state. The, the, the proliferation of numbers about what the state does and what the people do allows people to critique the state in new ways. It lets people say, hey, look, the important thing is that you lower the death rate and the death rate is not being lowered. Um, this is the hope of, of people in the general record office, that their statistics will help people see what is happening in society and then change it. And it was also the hope of the political arithmeticians who, in the aftermath of the Civil War in the 17th century, wanted a way of solving arguments that was objective, that didn't lead to the bloodshed of the Civil War. One of the, 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 the best examples of this, I think, comes from that intellectual touchstone, Karl Marx, whose book Capital was, of course, based on the statistics that were produced by the British state. Then there's, of course, the people who think that the counted world was bad. Largely, they believe that the counted world led to new conceptions of deviance in populations, which forced people to have new forms of control and new methods of surveillance. Um, now here we have Calpagum again, who, who sees the numeric discourse of British colonialism as flattening out the difference of Indian society, and this is an act of violence to local autonomy. Where Higgs sees the rise of numbers as helping civil society to do the things it already wants to do, like preserve property. Calpagum sees the rise of numbers as constraining civil society to do the things that the numbers make available. She calls this epistemic conquest. Here we also see Ian Hacking, who, for him, the, the creation of the idea of society represented by a normal person, by this, this, this sense of an average, um, also creates deviance. Once you measure society and say that an average person has a particular height, 
or say drinks an average number of coffees a day, then the people who are far outside that boundary are deviants. And this gives a moral question which we still have answered. Do we correct the deviants or do we leave them be? So thanks so, so much for joining me on uh, this, the second episode of Making of Historian. Um, next time we're gonna look at childhood, marriage, and the home. Um, as always, thank you very much to Jonathan Lear uh, who gave us the theme music. It's available on his album Reflection, which is on Spotify. You can also check out show notes for this episode, which will contain links to the books that I've read uh, uh, to get all this knowledge. And you can find that at historian.live. Thanks so much. I'll see you tomorrow.